1: Hi, this is James Mercer from The Shins.
2: This is Shirley Manson. This is Low
1: Torist, founder of the Cure. This is Huey Lewis giving you the story behind the song. The story behind the song is back with an exciting second season. We peel back the layers on music's most iconic hits with legendary artists like The Killers, Heart, The B-52s, Violent Femmes, Jewel, Huey Lewis, Modern English, and more. Keep the music flowing we'll be sprinkling in classic episodes from our archives between each new one so check out the story behind the song wherever you get your podcast
3: so you want to be a rock and roll star no well how about a podcast star well as it turns out there's a new all-in-one platform just for you it's called anchor and it's the easiest way to make a podcast and check this out it's free download the free anchor app right now or go to anchor.fm to get started so what are you waiting for podcast stardom is within your reach
0: i'm leor phillips host of this must be the gig we're a weekly podcast that documents everything about the world of live music Speaking with choreographers, costume and set designers, the people who run beloved venues and festivals, and of course, speaking with musicians about that one gig that changed their lives. Get your peek behind the curtain at consequenceofsound.net, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.
3: welcome to another edition of Kyle Meredith with the interview series presented by WFPK at WFPK.org Consequence of Sound and the Consequence Podcast Network thanks for uh, checking us out, uh, making your way here however you found us if you're not a subscriber and this is your type of thing, uh, hearing about what your favorite artists are up to or uh, enjoying discovering some new ones even just know what's happening in the music world, hit that subscribe button so you can keep up with all that we're putting out, three brand new interviews every Monday, Wednesday and Friday, of course, at all the major uh, podcast hotspots like iTunes and Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you found this one. I'm Kyle Meredith. Today is going to be another special episode. I'm once again going to be taking a pair of interviews that we did on the Kyle Meredith live series over on the Consequence of Sound Instagram. Uh, First, talking to John Batiste. Now, you know John as the band leader uh, for Stephen Colbert and the lead show. And then also, Nabil Ayers, he is the U.S. General Manager of the 4AD label. Uh, now, both, uh, I, I'm pairing them together because within the same week that we did both of those interviews, it was one of the many, many weeks of, uh, of social unrest in the country, and that's what we were talking about. Black Lives Matter, Blackout Tuesday, Juneteenth, the protests, and then, of course, how it affected uh, their work, their arts, their jobs all of that together. So I want to pair those together because uh, what both of my guests are saying uh, and doing, uh, they're, they're both doing very, very important work out there, and they're saying very important, poignant, relevant things. So we're actually going to start out with John Batiste now when we uh, when we did this live broadcast, it was voting primary day both here in Kentucky where I'm based and in New York where John is based in Kentucky it was all about the Democratic primary race to see who is going to go up against Mitch McConnell in November so of course that also we were able to take the broad strokes and talk about the November election as well uh, John had just released a a single called We are a fantastic song if you haven't checked it out, please do so as well and an album, so we tied all of that together. That's where we'll get started here. Kyle Meredith with John Batiste. Hey, what's happening?
2: How you doing?
3: I'm great, thank you for doing this. Uh, how's it going over there?
2: It's good, it's good. I'm, I'm here, I'm alive, and I'm
3: uh, in front of the piano. Thank you for doing this today, John. Uh, as I've been talking to everybody, today's an important day. You've been doing such uh, important work out there, really important work on the, on the front lines, on the streets, obviously uh, on the socials and everything. Uh, it is the primary voting today for both Kentucky and New York. Uh, we've got a lot of eyes on us down here in Kentucky, and I think we're gonna talk about it here in just a second. But I was gonna ask you about what New York's looking like right now. Um, have, have you voted? Yes, yes, and
2: and you know New York is, it's got a lot going on with the protest. You know, I'm in Brooklyn, and you can see at Barclays Center every day, there's thousands of people. You know, there's thousands of people standing up. There's thousands of people standing up in Manhattan, and go to Union Square. You go down to Empire State Building. You know, it's all of the landmarks. Right. Funny enough, are uh, where you're seeing a lot of people come out and say. Let's change the ideals of
3: what we say we are in America. Yeah, I think that's one of the most important things, too, because obviously, with all the conversation that's been happening over the last month or so, uh, especially over the last month or so, I should say, the conversation's been happening for way too long over hundreds of years, but especially over the last month or so, um, it really does come down to voting. And and I've liked what you have talked about in, in several of your other interviews because we're fighting a lot more than just racism, we're fighting apathy. And I think that's a dangerous, dangerous monster. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that as well, because I know that's something that's been on your mind. Well, there's a lot of things that are
2: creating the the, the system as we call it, the systemic oppression. And uh, there's a lot of things that are creating the environment for a lot of our issues to persist. And I think for me, when I said that I was speaking to the, the disengaged nature of many of us throughout our lives to change those systems and change that environment, which creates, it compounds on itself. Uh, things start to become more and more entangled with each other and finding the root of it is a very difficult task, um, which I chalk up to Apple. It's well, if we can't figure out how to get to the bottom of all of this, then why not just it'll someone else will fix it or it'll find a way to be fixed or it'll never be fixed. I'm going to give up on it. So race is obviously something that this country has to face and deal with. But there's so much more um, that is contributing to this atmosphere um, of of entanglement with dysfunction. And we have to really figure out how we're how we going to approach it um, collectively and how we're going to approach it with our individual experiences. As a black person, you approach it with a certain level of experience that no one else will have in regards to race. Then there's voting, which speaks to a lot of political systems that we have, they're remnants of, of, of broken ideology and toxic ideology. You know, there's one in 13 black Americans who because of felony charges for things that they shouldn't have ever gotten um, in the first place, don't even have their voice to even vote, you know? Yeah. And let's not even talk about sexism. I mean, the, 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 the Me Too movement spoke to that, um, which you're seeing a lot of different movements, even within the Black Lives Matter movement, there are trans lives. There are all of the different range of black lives. So uh, saying that to say, the apathy is merited in a lot of ways because there's so much to figure out. There's so much that can leave you feeling that there's a lot more that we can do, and the time is now.
3: Yeah, yeah. The um, I was having conversations this morning uh, about a lot of this. The, the apathy, of course, leads to inaction and what this is all about of course is is power and policy everything changes when the people making the rules are actually speaking for you right um we are talking about the primaries today again kentucky and new york but what we're really uh, eventually talking about is the much bigger election that's happening uh in in november uh of this year again in kentucky we've got charles booker uh, going against amy mcgrath that's really the biggest uh you know contest today to see who will go yes. up against mitch mcconnell um and, and it's become a race uh, very quickly, and it's become a race that I think a lot of people are looking at, uh, again, because of Mitch McConnell. What I said yes. earlier, and I don't know if you caught this, so Kentucky right now, I think, has already, if we haven't already, it's a record-breaking day for how many people have voted. Mm-hmm. A lot of the attention has been on that we have one big polling place here in Louisville, but the, uh, to us, the real story has been the mail-in voting. Mm-hmm. Uh, mail-in voting has been our biggest number ever. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's been amazing and I think as we look ahead you know that's got to be part of the conversation for November because I think that is everybody gets a chance then right everybody gets a chance and it doesn't even take you leaving your house at that point I mean when we talk about the ap- apathy when we talk about the inaction, you know voting should be as easy as possible
2: well if everyone can get on Twitter or Instagram then everybody should be able to vote digitally I think that there's a lot of different systems that Again, because of the entanglement and the, the, the lack of communication across different sectors, things are not advancing as much as they can. I think that that's one of the reasons why I love bringing music into the conversation when we're protesting, when we're rallying. Because every single thing that's at our disposal to create the mega apparatus to point to voting, to point to all of the different solutions as time unfolds that will solve this entanglement. Um, all of the things that we can garner to towards that are important. Um, and I think that those in the technology realm and the realm of um, advancing our voting capabilities are really called to action right now. We, th- there's a lot that we can do in the mail, but there's so many different ways that we already utilize in our everyday life and that are user-friendly and that people understand how to use, especially those, the uh, Generation Z, you know, those coming up who are just, this may be their first time ever voting, you know, they don't want to go through a rigid process. And I'm not dissuading them from voting because I think if you have to wait four or five hours, still you've got to vote. Absolutely. But there's so much that could easily be fixed in ways that
3: we have at our disposal right now. Right. Yeah. And that's true. Don't let any of that stop you out there. Um, somebody just said art must be parts of the revolution. Uh, and that's very, very true because that's something you're able to bridge out there. And and when, you know, I've seen you, the videos of you out there in the protests. Uh, and again, leading the way, leading the charge, which is just amazing. You know, the, the involvement that you've been a part of here. Are you finding that what we're, a lot of us are suspecting that, you know, it's not the first time that we've been here. It's not the 20th time that we've been here, but there does seem to be something different about this time. It's suddenly not just today's hot topic that, you know, left us two weeks ago. Why now? Why is it different? What what are you hearing out there? There's a difference because
2: of, well, if you think about technology, there's a lot of information that is spread very quickly. Even looking at the Tulsa rally and what happened with the tiktok and k-pop fans between twitter and tiktok you know that that whole range of communication um is is just rapidly accelerated and the range of information that we can communicate even people seeing the death of george floyd on video seeing the amy cooper incident with christian cooper in central park seeing all of these things compounded by the fact that we are in the time where we've been inside for months with coronavirus and people don't have as much to do. And there's not as much time to distract yourself from the things that we're seeing. And we're in the middle of an election cycle. I think that the compounding of all of these things creates a space for people to act in the same, at the same rapid pace that they're receiving the information. So now we're seeing across the world, people are protesting and are in one accord. This couldn't have happened in the civil rights movement because there was not that level of of communication and technological advancement to uh, allow for it to happen in that way. And I think that coupled with how long we've been dealing with the same issues, um, the the lack of development on things that have been a part of the fabric of America for better or for worse since its founding, um, to not have dealt with a lot of things while we've advanced in a lot of ways to have still these persistent issues that make American life uneven, mm. it, it, it becomes exacerbated with the, the, the certain, the, the, the climate of the world today.
3: Yeah, you know, one name that we say daily here in Louisville, of course, uh, is is Brianna Taylor. And kind of going by what you're saying, uh, she could have just been another name that came and went, but because of the access mm-hmm. that we have today you know, the entire world, at least the entire country has been able to hold uh, the Louisville Police Department's uh, feet to the flames on this. Uh, You know, it's not the justice I think a lot of people wanted to see yet, but finally seeing the cop at least get fired was one step. And there are people still camped out there every single day, you know, in in, in the middle of the city. Uh, We are seeing that down here. And, And again, for that to have been on however many days now, you know, a week's weeks that people have not stopped every single night i mean i mean that's amazing and and again i mean we had uh beyonce was even writing letters to the kentucky congress you know to 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 you know get a trial against these cops and everything beyond the protests have you found yourself engaged in government differently i mean I, i feel like that's always sort of been part of your your mo but again even for you is it different this time you know
2: i've i've done um marches and um protests you know even thinking back to the march for science you know on on the national mall that we did you know that's 30 40,000 people in support of science when mm-hmm. when uh, i mean it's always been something i've wanted to as much as possible and as authentically as possible bring the arts into the conversation of politics and government um, because I think it is a powerful way to galvanize people and bring people together, change hearts and minds on the, the, o- on the same token. I do think that now it's more urgent because so many people are listening. I, I think that the things that I've done in the past and the things that have happened in our country in the past, besides the major moments, um, it's always been a small group trying to convince the larger group. And this feels like one of the first times that, wow, there may be even, it's maybe even on both sides or even more on the side of those trying to spread the message. Mm -hmm. Um, So in that way, it seems very urgent to push as much as possible now while there's momentum.
3: You you mentioned, you know, bridging it with the arts and everything. And I do want to quickly bring up that you have a new single uh, out there with We Are. And this is... uh, Easily a very powerful song, one of the most powerful songs I've heard in a, in a little while. Uh, I know we've been talking a lot about uh, politics, but, but let's, can, can you talk a little bit about this song? Because trying to write a song for a moment is not always easy. And trying to, you know, put a, as much as going into the world into one song. I mean, what was that, what was that like for you this time? Well, it was, it was funny to have the song already
2: finished. Um, being that we we wrote the song last year, Autumn Roll and Kizzle, the producer, and myself. In November, the song was finished. I went to New Orleans to record it with my alma mater, the St. Augustine High School Marching Band, which is a high school-level band that is college-level pro- college proficient in terms of legend and in terms of what they've done for the culture, and I was a part of that band. In the school... Um, Founded in 1951 is a school for all black males to train them to be elite in the world in every different sector, politics, music, all of the, and everything in between. Um, business, a lot of leaders come from the school. So I was really on, this, on the wave of creating music like that for my next album and already following that wave and riding that wave in the world shifted to the point where I felt that this music needed to come out. And, and, and it really was something that met the moment and something that I think people could really get a lot of of nourishment and joy and um, and, and be reinvigorated in this time
3: through hearing music that was deeply rooted in the things that we're protesting for. And, and let's hit that title because it's become its own, you know, hashtag through that, yeah, you say we are. Mm-hmm. That's a sentence in itself, but can you can you finish it as well?
2: Yes. Well, we are a lot of things. We are as a response. We are is saying that they're saying that we're not, but we are. And we are as saying that we are the ones who can change the course of history. As you were saying earlier when we started talking that this has been going on for hundreds of years in many contexts in America. Well, we are the ones who for the next two, three, four hundred years can change the course of that. Right now we have the opportunity to do that. Um, we're also the ones who create culture, we're the ones who create the the dynamic that is at play in, in the world. So we are responsible for what happens in this moment in history. So many so many things are tied to that we are. It's a response to a lot of things, it's the an answer to a lot of things. That we are is really symbolic of a lot of what
3: I believe we can do and in response to what's happened in the past, what can happen in the future. I'm going to read a couple comments really quickly here. I know as we're wrapping up the time, our friend Amy Kaplan says, Your musical protests are fantastic. Thank you for using your voice to bring much needed change. Uh, I can also echo that. Uh, Let's see. uh... Thank you, Amy. Yeah. Graham also says, uh, joy as an act of resistance is also important and music really helps reinvigorate the masses to keep on fighting and shows the world we are united. Uh, yes. Again, uh, completely uh, agree with all of that. A lot of what you're doing right now is, it looks like an immediate response to what happens the, the previous day. <laughs> uh, is there anything though that we can, that you've got planned that we can look forward to beyond uh, you know what, what what's what's in motion for you right now wow i really take it you know
2: like you're saying it's a day at a time the the the, the protest, the first protest that we planned happened we put it together uh, over a day and a half and you know the same as with the the rally and 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 the voter registration recital at, at, at the brooklyn public library and and you know with the help of my colleagues and and all of my collaborators who are of one accord, and we want to see change happen. We want to point people to the voting booth. And all of these things are really about responding. So I can't really say what's next um, <laughs> other than that we're going to keep on the fight, keep, keep marching down the path. And as the spirit leads us, we will act.
3: I certainly appreciate what you're doing out there again. And again, uh, if uh, all of you who are watching right now, it, you know, especially if you're in Kentucky or New York today, uh, vote, 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 yeah. Vote. And then it's coming up, uh, uh, you know, our numbers, the amount of people who live in this country versus the amount of people who show up to the voting booth. It's embarrassing, I think, every single, every single year. Uh, and that needs to change. Um, you know, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, John, but I think uh, you could probably agree with me that it is the most important thing that we can all do right now. Well, voting is literally the most important thing that we can do. Most
2: of us can do it. That's, that's the beauty of voting. Most in the country can vote. Mm-hmm. There's not many things you can say that about. In America, we can actually vote and have our voice be heard in our community and nationally. 100 million people didn't vote in the last presidential election, 100 million. More than 40% of eligible people who could vote didn't vote. That's, that's something
3: that speaks to the apathy um, and we have to combat that at all costs. Absolutely, well, thank you for being a voice of that and a voice for so much out there, John, and thank you so much for doing this today. I so appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely, thank you. I, I'm glad to do it, man, yeah. keep pushing it. Again, that uh, interview with John Batiste, that was a a live recording, Instagram Live for the Kyle Meredith Live series on the Consequence of Sound Instagram. See how many times I can say the same words over and over. Uh, Later on that week, again, I talked with Nabil Ayers. He's the U.S. General Manager of the 4AD record label. Among the many artists, the National, Pixies, and and so many others through the the history of uh, indie rock and roll, have been part of the 4AD uh, legacy. Nabil had just written an article for the New York Times about the very first head of a record label who was black. And you may be surprised to know, you may not be surprised at all, to, uh, to know that it wasn't until the 90s that that happened. It's sort of mind-blowing. Now, this was also in the hills of Blackout Tuesday, where the entire music industry sort of took time to reflect. Uh, that's in this conversation as well. So let's jump into it. Kyle Meredith with Nabil Ayers. I'm great. How are you? The real joke of this is everything I just said is a lie, and you and I are only going to be talking about Soundgarden for I mean, the that's, three that hours. sounds fun, too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we can do the, the bonus episode. That's it. Uh, again, uh, Nabil, you are the uh, U.S. General Manager of 4AD. You're also um, a writer, and uh, and we're going to be getting into that. In in fact, I think that's where we would start today because this whole conversation starts because of an article that you recently just published in the New York Times uh, titled, uh, let's see, I'm reading here, Breaking Down Those Color Lines in a Music Industry That Drew Them. I'm going to let you talk about him because uh, who is Ed Eckstein Eckstein and his his importance to the music industry?
1: Um, well, Ed, I mean, to sort of go back in the story, and some of this is in the time story, but if people haven't read it, um, when I was in a band in 1995, a long time ago, it was a rock band called The Lemons when I lived in Seattle. We signed to Mercury Records, which is a huge deal, you know, a big major label. And we are in New York, um, kind of getting walked around the building. And <clears throat> we met the president of the label, who was this guy, Ed Eckstein. Um, and we just talked to him for 10 or 15 minutes, really nice guy. And I knew at the time... That he was the first ever black president of an american major label which which felt like a huge deal and i was shocked that that hadn't happened until the 90s um so we talked to ed for a few minutes you know just about our band and i didn't really have an opportunity to talk to him about all the things i wanted to talk to him about because i thought it was fascinating and at the time i was not only in a band but i'd always been interested in the business and i worked in a record store and had interned at a record company and all that stuff so i really wanted to get into it more with him but it didn't happen there. And then um, I've been working on a book, which we can talk about more later, but I kind of go back to that scene in the memoir. And while I've been writing it, I was in Los Angeles where Ed lives in January of this year. Um, and I just thought, oh, maybe I'll just reach out to Ed, see if I can get a hold of him and talk to him yeah, 25 years later about that day. <laughs> and, uh, and he was great. We met for lunch and we got into everything. And he just started telling me a lot more amazing stories about his experience and everything. And so... Um, A few months later, I guess almost a month ago now, when this Blackout Tuesday day was called, which was basically two women from the music industry um, started this cause basically saying because of all the injustice and violence, all the horrible things happening, um, everyone in the music industry should take this day off to sort of reflect on everything that's happening and and work on change, which, which seemed great. And uh, our company D and beggars agreed to do so you know and everyone kind of did it in their own way and what we said is people you have the day off use it constructively do what you want to do um and so I immediately turned around to myself and I was like well what am I going to do on that day that's important I don't just want a day off and the perfect thing seemed to reconnect with it I was like why do not I just call him again and that's that's the guy to talk to on a day like today and then of course my sort of business mind turned on and I thought well, it would also be cool if that conversation could be for the New York Times and It was total luck and really fast response. They were into it. And so we talked for a while and uh, that turned into the piece that came out two days later, which is crazy.
3: Yeah. And and as you said, it is surprising when you think about 1995, uh, only 25 years ago, that you get the first black president of a major label, considering, first off, just first off, top of mind, how many... Huge black artists have came from the major labels. Right. Well well before that. Right. How many major labels were built just on black music Um, from the very beginning? I should say, I'm going to ask some obvious questions because they're obvious questions. Why did it take so long?
1: I mean, you know, and I'll I'll say this up front, I'm not an expert on all this stuff. I'm an expert on my opinions. And so mm-hmm. not everything I say will be absolute fact, but I can tell you what I think. Um, and I think it's because the major labels in America have traditionally been run by white people, um, which is fine. Of course, it would have been nice if there were more non-white people involved from an earlier time, but um, that, that's who was running it from the beginning and that's who continued to run it, like a lot of things in the world. And I think, you know, I can't sit here and and claim to know about some systematic oppression. I'm sure obviously some systemic stuff existed like it does in many places, but I don't have evidence or anecdotes of it. But I think it's because it stayed the way it was. Mm -hmm. That's probably what a lot of people would tell you until finally they let some people in. And that's kind of the, the angle that I worked with in the conversation with Ed is that, you know, it's not that no one was
3: capable before him. It's that he was the first one that was allowed in. Yeah. Did he talk about the environments at all at that point that that he was in? I mean, did did he feel like it was an all eyes on me type of uh, situation?
1: Not as much in a good way. And, you know, I've talked to a lot of people about this since the story. And, you know, my assumption when first asking him about it was that he's going to tell me the story about how everyone was against him and everyone was waiting for him to fail and you know the the mercury roster at the time when he started was Def Leppard and Kiss and Bon Jovi you know the biggest white rock bands in the world that were suddenly under his control Um, and his story was kind of the opposite you're like there are some things of course there are people saying like what does this guy know about rock music whatever and that's but but actually he said he felt pretty good about it and he was there for a long time. And I was happy to hear that, you know, not not every story about a black person doing something has to be about the struggle and all the forces against them. Tons of those stories exist and those need to be told and examined. But it's really nice to hear a story that is just about this guy who was smart and successful and made
3: it work. Worked hard and got there. Yeah. yeah and, th- and, and this even comes, what, 12 years after or maybe even less than that, the MTV fiasco of uh, everybody coming out and down, because of course, famously right. in the early 80s, MTV were not playing black artists at all, and sort of said, we're not gonna play them because they're black. Uh, right. and it took Michael Jackson's Thriller to kind of change that around, you know, yeah. something that huge budget. So again, I, I think that just goes on to say the ludicrousness, You know, with, with no disrespect to Ed's working hard about how mm-hmm. it took that long though, to, to, just to have anyone you know, in, in that kind of, uh, of state. I know, um, and there
1: were, there definitely were higher ups you know, what happened, I guess maybe in the 70s is a lot, you know, as obviously black artists were doing so well and making so much money for major labels, labels set up various urban or black music or R&B departments with different titles. And those departments were usually run and staffed predominantly by black people, but they were very much next to or beneath the general label.
3: Well, you, you yeah. said something there with, with urban and, and that kind of brings us into a point that's now you know kind of pulling that into the present uh why this all matters now obviously because now that we have seen the protests now that uh black lives matter has finally seems to have taken hold in the way that it always should have you right know? i mean we were talking with uh john batiste on this uh, series two days ago and and that was kind of part of the conversations like w- it feels different now why does it feel different now? And you're seeing that in the music industry, too, uh, not mm-hmm. just because of Blackout Tuesday, but it immediately became a thing about a name change as well, and the urban charts was a part of that, right?
1: Yeah, it was the, well, I'm not sure about the charts, but I think the day after that piece ran, and I'm not saying it was because of our piece, it's been a conversation for a long time, but I think Universal was the first major label that came out the next day and said, we're dropping the title urban from, I, I guess their department was called the urban department. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think they said the new name, maybe didn't have one yet, but they said, we're no longer using this. And then a week later, the Grammys announced the awards for next year. And I think there were three Grammys that used the word urban in the title and they no longer do. Like one is called progressive R&B now. And it's interesting because cause there are a lot of people who, who think the urban word is not all bad. It's, you know, it kind of depends on how it's used. I mean, I think it, in music, some of it came from these urban radio stations in the 60s and 70s who, who really were kind of the voice to and of the black communities in and, and Chicago and lots of big cities. And they were considered urban stations. And that wasn't a bad thing. I think it maybe became less good when urban just meant the black section of the record
3: company, whatever kind of music it is, it's urban. That's that's what people have a problem Sh- with. Sure, because really, uh, in talking about the charts specifically, uh, the urban word was just a replacement for what it was called before then, which was the black charts. Yeah, the black, yeah. <laughs> right. yeah. I mean, there you can look at Billboard
1: uh, issues in the 80s that have black at the time you know pop country black it's pretty crazy looking
3: yeah and 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 it's really really easy to see what the obvious uh racism on that even if even if it wasn't meant to be or what you know whatever it it is very obviously racism because it isn't the white charts it wasn't ever the white charts (laughs) right and the white uh, charts got divided into lots of different things whether it's pop or country or metal or whatever it was yeah Mm -hmm. yeah like um, and, and I should point out, I mean, that that's obviously happening further than just that, uh, even down to as we saw with the Lady Annabellum and now All the right. Dixie Chicks, <laughs> the chicks. who uh, as of today are just the chicks. Yeah. You know? uh, <laughs> Splash Mountain is no longer going to be Splash Mountain. I mean, but it, and, and, and that's the thing. There, there are people out there that, that are rolling their eyes at this. These might be little things, but they're not little things like it, these are the, the stepping stones of everything that has to change in the music industry and out right I
1: agree yeah. and I think it's things like Lady Antebellum and the Dixie Chicks and even NASCAR not allowing the Confederate flag to be flown which was crazy and I didn't realize that that could be until weeks ago but but still at least with those things and the way Taylor Swift is tweeting which is also incredible you know those people are reaching an audience way beyond the people that you and I are talking to every day in our bubble and you know those conversations are important too but when the Dixie Chicks do that they're really risking alienating a lot of people. It's a big step for them to take, and I think it's cool, and I hope a small percentage of those people says, huh, I never thought about that. Right, That's really right. the goal, I think. You know?
3: Yeah, at least for any band who's used to alienating some portion of their, you know, the right. Dixie Chicks at least know what they're doing, you know, when they're right, into right. that arena. <laughs> yeah, so experience. Yeah. Uh, I always get a lot of respect for them. Um, yeah. you, you and I did a little pre-talking before this interview, and, and you mentioned it here too, um, that b- even before you got into you know, the major label business, everything you had, uh, you had ran record stores. And, right. and, and you and I had talked to, I want you to talk a little bit more about this, because Black History Month was even sort of, a, as you right. said, a bit of an awkward, you know, uh, occurrence every year.
1: Yeah, I always thought that was weird. There's Black Music Month, which I think now is officially called African American Music Appreciation Month, which, you know, has a lot less of a ring to it, but <laughs> it's maybe more appropriate. Uh, and I was shocked. I was, I was looking up recently, and it's, it's June, right? It's right now. And, uh, and every year the president does an official proclamation talking about African Music Appreciation Month and Obama did it, of course. Donald Trump did it. He didn't tweet about it, but if you Google it online, there's a full page of him writing about the importance of black music in American culture. And, you know, obviously I'm sure he didn't write it, but it's incredible that this document exists from a few weeks ago. But it's, uh, it's a weird thing in music. I mean, of course it's meant, it's a month to highlight things and to sort of put a spotlight on lots of great artists does that make the other 11 months white music months? Right. Sort of the age old question. But yeah, when I worked in record stores, which I think my first record store job was at a store in Seattle called Easy Street in 93 or 94 or something like that. And then I owned my own store called Sonic Boom for years. And so every year when it came around, you know, there'd be, we'd get a whole bunch of new posters and things. And the stores and I worked at were pretty like indie rock stores that of course, sold R&B and rap and lots of stuff, but it wasn't our staple. We were selling, you know, whatever, Def Cab for Cutie, Soundgarden, all that stuff. So so the reps from all the labels who came in all the time to put up posters would come in during Black Music Month and say, hey, can I just put up like these five different posters for, you know, these R&B artists that you don't sell, that you don't even carry. I just need to put up these poster displays, take pictures of them so I can have them in my report on Black Music Month and then I'll take the displays right down. And I always thought it was so crazy that that's, you know, that's kind of what was getting pushed out there. To be fair, they would do the same thing sometimes with a Garth Brooks display. They would say, I need to get 50 Garth Brooks displays in Seattle. I know you guys don't sell Garth Brooks. Can I do it?
3: So, right. but it was, you know, it was a bit of a, it felt like people going through the motions a lot of the time. And I, and I think that's, you know, it's still part of that conversation today where you're curious when, you know, something like a Blackout Tuesday does happen and, and mm. everybody does come out. And, and good for everybody for saying something, but, but when, it, when it's the very next day, they just, like that's, that's always been my thing about this. It's the exact same thing about the other 11 months being, what are they, white music month? Right, okay, it's, it's over like, now. Yeah. It's <laughs> like Blackout Tuesday is great. Black History mm-hmm. Month is great, but what about the next day? Right. And I think that's finally the conversation everybody seems to be having right now. It's okay, right. how is this not going to be a trend? Right. I wanna pull this- action, yeah. Right. And I, I I want to pull that back a little bit to the beginning of this conversation when we were talking about Ed here. Um, is it better now? You know, you know, the the label game obviously much more than I do. And again, if uh, anybody who's just joining us uh, and Bill Ayers here is the uh, U.S. General Manager of 4AD, is it better now or does it still feel like, you know, a white lead thing in the majors or, or just even in the mini majors? I
1: think I mean- yeah, right. Mini majors, I guess, is that us? I mean, for is an independent label, but yeah, the major labels are obviously the the huge Universal, mm-hmm. Sony, etc. Um, and you know, and I don't work in that system. I certainly know people who do. I know artists who are on it, so I know a bit about it. And you know, in a in a strange way, and this is something we talked a bit about in the piece. Of course, it's better. It's better than it was fifty years ago, but it's not it's not over, it's not great, it still needs to improve. And the weird thing that Ed and I talked about is the sort of division within those companies because some of the huge major labels do sell so much R&B and rap and music by black artists. And a lot of the time, those departments are so divided. So I have a friend who works at a major label and she happens to be white she's, she's like, I'm one of the weird people who works with everybody. A lot of people work, You know, the rock department is largely white r&b department is largely black and they almost keep to themselves a lot of the time but she kind of crosses everyone and she feels really strangely in the middle but you know that's an odd thing and i hope one thing that hopefully will help that change is the taking away of the word urban from the name Mm -hmm. of the department but another thing could just be the sort of blending of genres that's i think always been happening but is really happening now where there are a lot of white artists playing r&b music and whether or not that's appropriation that's a whole other debate but it's certainly happening probably more than ever. And there are a lot of black artists playing rock music and indie music. And, you know, that's hopefully, and there are racially mixed bands. And hopefully all this stuff can just kind of see my hands just
3: come together. And over time, that'll help it go away. Yeah. And you're right. The genre thing, maybe even, you know, if we look back in the history books, we can see that that was one of the things that led the way with uh, when the millennial generation did start coming up, because that was one of the first things I noticed. Whereas, whereas we made entire identities, out of the genre of music that we liked. Right. You know, that, that was our outfits. That was inside and outside. <laughs> All right. That really started to disappear really quickly. You know, I, I remember before we really started coining everything, the millennial generation, uh, I call it the, uh, the, the the shuffle generation because it, you know, when the iPod, right. sh- you know, the, the shuffle button came around, it sort of changed everything. But, right. it, but it is, you know, and I know, I don't want to take anything away from a movement. I'm absolutely not doing that because because obviously these kind of conversations are the real game changers. But it right. does seem like genre does play a large part of that that is disappearing right now. Right. I mean, that's really interesting that you pointed that out. Yeah, I think it's great. It's still, you know, in a way it's hard because, still
1: you know, when we put out a new record, we still have to tick a box that says it's this kind of music. You have to really? for, you know, whatever, for iTunes or Spotify or for stores, for everybody, it just it has to be done. Um, but, you know, it's I think it's gradually going in the right direction for sure.
3: Yeah. yeah. At least the listeners don't see it like that, you know, whether or not the stores do anyway. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we'll yeah. Um, I, I was looking at some of my notes and, and I'll point everybody again to this, uh, this New York Times article. Is that, is that the actual title that I'm seeing here, breaking down those color lines in a it is. industry that's, that's that drew their them? their
1: title. I, uh, the thing I've learned as a, a recent new writer is that you, you can write the piece, but you usually can't <laughs> make the title. Right.
3: <laughs> I mean, the title's fine but I didn't yeah. write the title <laughs> well just saying that's what everybody can uh, can look for in there because right. uh, you talk in this interview a, a lot about uh, about a lot of things you know uh, the divided system I think that mm-hmm. was like the most interesting you know part of that to me and I know we've touched yeah. upon that uh, in here um, it's just uh, you know such a weird era that that hopefully is changing Is there, are you going to be taking on any more of these I mean do you have any more pieces come up and you also mentioned that you're writing your book
1: yeah I've been it's interesting I mean I just sort of started writing I don't know where it came from but three or four years ago I just started whatever getting older thinking about things thinking about my life I've had a pretty interesting life a black father and a white mother and grew up in a really diverse community and then moved to Salt Lake City which was super white and got into MTV and then uh, ended up playing in bands and now I live in New York and work for a record label Um, so it's I kind of started writing about all of that and it published some pieces. There's a piece in NPR's Code Switch, which is kind of their race vertical, um, another New York Times piece, a bunch of, you know, a handful of things. But it's been really fun. And each one that I write has kind of opened up some more things. And so that turned into a book, which is really a memoir, which is, I guess is just a, an extended version of that that I have a first draft done on. And I'm waiting on notes, but I think it'll be out next year with Viking, which is super exciting. Right on. You got the title ready yeah.
3: yet? Have you been, have you been sleeping it's, on the title? I, I can't.
1: I can't say it because just like the... Uh, <laughs>
3: I have yeah. an idea, but you know, got to say right. something. Right, right, right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Nabil Ayers, again, uh, U.S. general manager for 4AD, uh, one of my all time favorite record labels. I mean, talk about oh, uh, legendary and everything you all do. Uh, I mean, uh, mine again, too. That's what's so funny. <laughs> before, <laughs> again, well, before I worked there. Yeah. yeah. I encourage every single one of you all uh, watching, viewing right now to uh, look up the New York Times piece and, uh, and stay. Uh, uh, following uh, Nabil and whatever you're writing out there because I always enjoy what, what you're putting out there. Thank you so much Thank for you. taking the time to talk about this today. It's so Thank appreciated. you. it been great. All Thanks right. for having me. And again, my thanks to Nabil Ayers as well as John Batiste. Uh, if you're interested in, uh, in in watching along when we do the live series, those are Tuesdays and Thursdays at 3 p.m. Eastern on the Consequence of Sound Instagram. You can head over there. I always like when uh, when everybody participates, asks questions, comments. We always try to include those within the interviews as well. And of course, with this series, if you're uh, not already a subscriber, this is the cool uh, content that you get multiple times a week. Uh, new interviews released every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. So uh, hit that subscribe button if you're not already. iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you like to get podcasts from. After that, head to WFPK.org, where I do a show Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern. That's an hour full of song premieres and music news, anniversary spins, and bonus interviews. Again, WFPK.org. Consequence of Sound, they've got your music and film news. You can also find me on the social media spots at Kyle Meredith. Hope you like and follow along there as well. That does it for another edition on Kyle Meredith. I'll see you next time. Consequence Podcast Network.
0: It's easy to hear your favorite artist on WFPK from wherever you are. Listen on your smart speaker, live stream from our website at WFPK.org from Louisville Public Media.